Bill Reese is an antiquarian rare book dealer based in New Haven, Connecticut, very close to Yale University, physically and emotionally. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Perhaps you could start off with uh, why you became an antiquarian book dealer. I got involved in the book business at a very young age. Uh, I first really became involved in antiquarian books mainly because of my interest in American history. And when I was in high school, I got more and more interested in finding sources of things I was reading in footnotes and discovering were books that were not readily available. And that led me by various steps into going to things like uh, college book shows, the Smith College Book Fair, things like that, things that were then big. At this point, there were very few of the established antiquarian book fairs there are now. So it, it became more and more of a passion of mine, and I got more and more involved in it and met more people in the world. And when I came to New Haven as an undergraduate in 1973, I immediately moved into my dormitory, the residential college Yale I lived in, was the half a block away from the Beinecke Library, which is one of the greatest rare book libraries in the world. So I quickly got to know the curators there and got very involved, and through them I, I met a lot of people, and they obviously could open a lot of doors for me. Just in terms of what? Introducing you to people in the... In Introducing the... me to people in the, in the business. I mean, if my undergraduate advisor was a wonderful man named Archibald Hanna, who was the curator in charge of the Americana collections at Beinecke. And everybody in the book world knew Archie, and um, he, was, he was a wonderful guy, deeply beloved by the scholars and by booksellers and so forth. So just going places in, uh, in his wake uh, was a very good way to meet people. I was uh, really, at that point, though, probably more focused on an academic career. I mean, kind of what I thought I would do would be a history professor. What so, was it about American history that got you hooked? Wanting to know about your roots, or wanting to know about my roots, I I suppose uh, it was simply something that interested me. The other thing that really interested me as a uh, as a boy was natural history. I grew up in the country. I grew up in a farm, and raised a lot of animals, raised a lot of birds, particularly, and I was very interested in ornithology. <clears throat> and through that, I got interested in John James Audubon. And of course, Audubon's works were already widely reproduced. My father had been interested in Audubon when he was a young man and at one point it actually owned a bunch of Audubon prints back in the 1930s which he told me he paid ten dollars a piece for. <laughs> he said uh, if he bought 33 of them for ten dollars a piece because the only problem was I didn't have three hundred thirty dollars and he ultimately sold them and, and made some money and ultimately his career took a completely different path and he went to work for Coca-Cola for many years. He was from Atlanta. Anything to do with the written word or no. He, my, my father helped start bottling plants when Coca-Cola was first expanding out into the world. Okay. Um, he helped start most of the bottling plants in uh, the Caribbean in the 1930s. Canada, he helped start the Toronto plant in 1937. Mm. The Alaska plants uh, just before the war, so forth. Was he a book collector? Or? No, not at all. Not at all, not at all. okay. I mean, neither one of my parents were book collectors, but we, we had a house full of books, though. There, right. there was a, a lot of reading in, um, in rural Maryland in the late 1950s and early 1960s. You didn't have a television set, which we did not because there was no television reception. Reading was the option. 
This is very different for children nowadays. Yeah, you know, they've just got so many. It was they? very easy to focus on reading because uh, <laughs> it was what there was. Right. No <laughs> choice. I, I, either that or go run around in circles in the <laughs> Right, or write novels, yeah, I guess. Exactly. So my twin interests in natural history and in American history really at first found a focus in Audubon, uh, who of course is a great figure in both. And so this was something my dad really was returning to, he, he enjoyed it. So he and I went to places when I was a kid, like the old print shop in New York, which I don't know if you've been to, but is, is still a terrific place, very atmospheric place. The Newmans who run it now, their dad, Kenny, was a young man at that point. They weren't born. But Kenny knew and their father I've literally known since I was uh, 10 years old. And that was a functioning print shop at that point? Oh, very much so. Uh, it was started by the grandparents of, uh, the, of the two brothers who run it now. Okay. Um, a guy named uh, Harry Shaw Newman. And Harry Shaw Newman was, was a legendary dealer. He was one of the great art dealers in the country. And at that point, they dealt a lot in American paintings. American, American art got no respect in those days. I mean, it was just genre painting. And um, there weren't many serious painting dealers dealing in it. But Audubon was, was a big... Seller for him, was it? Yeah, they, they specialized they a lot in Audubon prints. And right. like so I still have some Audubon prints uh, that came from there back way back then. But in any case, um, when I was here, um, I got to know through Archie Hanna a man named Peter Decker. And Peter Decker was one of the great figures in Americana book dealing um, in, the, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, he had actually started as a newspaper man, then he'd gotten into being a book dealer. Um, and he had helped one of the Beinecke brothers build that Beinecke brothers' personal collection of the three brothers who built the library. Um, and Peter, by the time I knew him, had retired. Um, he had really retired from business in the mid-60s. Um, but he stayed active. He still, um, there's a New York dealer, Jan Barkfield, who is, or still exists, but not, they're not entirely art dealers. Uh, but Jack Barkfield is a great friend of Peter's, and Jack let Peter have desk space in kind of his warehouse room. So and that he could continue to be near the books. Exactly. And Peter, yeah. and, Peter and Archie were great friends, and they, they went on a trip together every year. They'd, they'd go on some book trip to somewhere right. or another. Scouting so, and, and... Scouting and for fun. Uh, right. just, just for fun, really. So um, I got to know Peter. And I, so I started going into New York, and you know, if I, the afternoon I didn't have classes, I'd go in and spend some time hanging out with Peter, and you know, then go off and do whatever I did as a 19-year-old boy in New York City. Um, and uh, what, what, was it, what was that? <laughs> what was that? What was that? Let's yeah. see. Let's see. Pool was, or? Uh, <laughs> it was, uh, when, when was that? It was 1973, 1974. <laughs> I certainly, I certainly missed some trains back to New Haven a couple of occasions, but exactly where I was and what I was doing, I'm not, I think is, is with the phrase lost in the mists of antiquity or something okay. like that. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, Peter, one day I got in, I had lunch with Peter, and Peter said, well, I've got an interesting proposition for you. Um, you know, you've talked about your interest in the book business and maybe going into the book business someday. How would you like to, how would you like to do it? And I said, well, I'm Maybe, but you know, I kind of thought I'd graduate from college first. And so the story was, Peter had a, had a very good customer uh, who lived out in New Jersey. And the guy had died. He had no, no, he wasn't married, he didn't have any kids. His closest heir was a first cousin once removed who really hadn't known him. And he had this huge house, big mansion, huge grounds, must have been worth even then a fortune. 
and it was full of books. And the first cousin once removed just wanted to sell the house, and she couldn't sell the house till she got all the books out of there. Right. And so she had uh, made an offer. She had suggested to Peter the number that she wanted for the books, and Peter said, look, this is very reasonable. So I drove Peter out, and we went and looked at all the books. And even with what I knew of the book market then, I could see that this was very, very cheap. Mm -hmm. Like uh, a dime on the dollar or thereabouts? Or? Well, hard to say. I mean, I, I, mean I, I couldn't tell you in the end whether it was a dime on the dollar or not, but it was just obviously a, a, a deal you couldn't really go wrong with. Right. So um, I figured, okay, I figured I'd do it. So I went to my parents and persuaded my parents, who had considerable faith in me, I must say, um, to loan me the money to do it. Prior to graduation? I was a sophomore. A sophomore. So you're the Bill Gates of the uh, antiquarian book business. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, the empire is just as big. <laughs> um, and uh, so I bought the collection. 20 tons of books it turned out to be. Uh, after we'd made the deal and, and you know, handed over the money, and I, I rounded up Sorry, a bunch 20 of, tons? 20 tons of books. I, I hired a bunch of my college friends to help me pack it, and we got a semi, and you know, I rented a storage place. And The main library room, which Peter and I just looked at and pulled some individual books off the shelf and so forth, turned out to be double shelf when we... Went to pack the books up. So, it, <laughs> you mean you hadn't even seen behind them? Hadn't even seen behind. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, so, that's double your money right there, then. So that really kind of kept me busy the rest of the time. I, you know, I continued my academic career and I graduating see. and and working with selling the books that I bought, cataloging them. And yeah, and I, I formed a partnership with another with a guy who was an active dealer because. You know, I needed somebody who was actively in business and was kind of set up to do invoicing and stuff like that. I couldn't possibly manage that. Right. I did a lot of the cataloging, and, and uh, he he did more of the you know, kind of the, the business processing of things. Yeah. Um, so, so you got a look at a at a not just a ton of books, twenty tons. Twenty of books. tons of books. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and of course, and I was already active, so that's really the point. In April of '75 when I actually got into business. Okay. Um, so really, it was a, a combination of uh, of a good connection, good relationship with someone, and the good fortune to come across a, a yeah. huge collection. Yeah, that, it, was all, it was really all those things. Right, really all those things. Um, what about uh, the collector today who is? Now, I, I want to sort of talk about why you got into the business, but also intersperse that with questions from the perspective of a collector. Mm -hmm. um, back, in the, back in the day, that day, you could go around the country and scout all sorts of bookstores and pull treasures off the, the shelves because there wasn't an internet. There was mm -hmm. A.B. Bookman, I guess. Or, yeah. But if you weren't in the business uh, or you didn't, subscribe to that you just eyeballed the price that's right um that must have been a huge thrill to 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 actually go and find all of this treasure well it was i mean there was uh, you know it was an, it was a very very different world and there was it was a very very steep learning curve um and because you had to hold a lot of it in your own head you had to right? hold a huge amount in your head um the more the more you looked basically the more you saw the more you understood but you had to 
retain it um, and remember what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think there are different kinds of memory. Um, and some people are great memory. I'm terrible with people's faces. I mm -hmm. you know, faces and names, but I'm very good at books. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, really the way you learned was looked at as many books as you could. And, you know, and I started very actively buying and selling, and that was the other way you learned. Um, mm -hmm. you, you, you discovered what was in demand and what wasn't. Yeah, and you, as you started to develop customers, of course, you knew what your customers were looking for. Mm -hmm. And it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. If you, in those days, the hardest thing to find back then was a book that you wanted that was out of print that was a $10 book. It was a lot easier to find a book you wanted that was a $1,000 book because somebody would take the trouble to try to get it to you or you could talk to a Because it was worth their, worth their effort, lot. yeah. But um, finding... Uh, an inexpensive book you wanted <laughs> that was a formidable challenge yeah. and you remember I'm sure you know what AB Bookman's Weekly was like and so forth but those were at this point they looked just remarkably they, what they were remarkably imperfect mm -hmm. so it was it was an incredibly imperfect market and it, what you, it, sorry, it was what a very, there was a very steep learning curve to acquiring yeah. the mass of knowledge you knew to become a force in it Mm -hmm. But once you got there, um, you had a huge advantage over the world. If you, were, if you were both physically getting around and seeing what different people had in different stores, you know, if you formed the contacts, which I work hard on doing. Um, and in my case, I also, another kind of accident of luck was when I'd been out of college for a couple of years in the early 80s um, and had spent a lot of time going around this country, the dollar got very strong. When Reagan came in, he did all these things, and suddenly the dollar is twice as strong as it then. So I moved my act to Europe, and really for the next three years, I probably spent three to four months a year in Europe, and I was doing the same thing there. I was running around, I was meeting the dealers, and at that point, people weren't repricing to the internet. Um, people's prices were their prices, or whether they were in pounds or kroners or what have you, and in dollars, they were looking incredibly cheap. And I had already formed some very good relationships with some of the leading dealers in this country, particularly Warren Howell in San Francisco, who um, was still alive, and who I had a very good rapport with. And Warren had you know, some of the best customers around. He was the biggest dealer, at that point really the biggest dealer in my area of expertise. So I would call him up from Europe, and I'd say, Warren, you know, I'm sitting here looking at whatever, and um, you know, could we, can we buy it and make money? And we'd buy it together, and you know, I'd get it arranged to get it shipped and everything, and he'd often have it sold by the time it got to him. So uh, those were really great years. I was going to say I had, I, had a, I had a wonderful time. I was, you know, I was, I was young. I was completely undetached. Um, I was um, able to go back and forth as much as I liked. Um, and it was, like in, picking, retro, in retrospect, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. I was going to say, <laughs> picking the low-hanging fruit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, so, but I guess that leads to the next question then. What's the collector supposed to do today? Like, where do you, where do you get, where do you have your fun? Where do you have your fun? Yeah. Well, um, you know, the, the internet um, is, the, the internet has a lot of good things to be said for it too. I mean, for the collector today, it allows for instant comparison shopping. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can really go and take, you know, you're either going to discover that there's only one copy of the book, 
So you know there's a certain scarcity. Or you're going to see that there are a number of copies of the book. And, you know, there were always books that, that we all, you know, I, what I call standard rarities. I mean, mm -hmm. they were rare books, they were important books, significant books. Everybody, you know, in, who's going to collect in an area is going to want a copy. Um, in American, let's say in American history, I'll give you a perfect example, um, is uh, Banster Tarleton's history of his campaigns in America. You know, he's famous British cavalry leader, uh, Cornwallis' cavalry commander. Um, wrote a very good book, a little hard on Americans, but a very <laughs> good book, um, about his campaigns in the South during the American Revolution. It's published in London in 1787. It's got a series of very nice maps in it. So it's interesting cartographically. It's interesting from a revolutionary point of view. It's a handsome, you know, kind of English quarto of that period. Nice book. Mm -hmm. Well made. And well made. Um, and so it, it's a book that's always going to have a level of value, uh, but nobody, nobody ever thought that this was a rare book. But nonetheless, pre-internet, you were only going to be looking at the copy that you were looking at. Um, and if you went into a bookstore, you know, if you went into Mags Brothers and there was a lovely copy of it, you probably weren't going to shop any further. Whereas now you can go online and, you know, it's a sufficiently common book that I don't think since the internet's really kind of gotten up and running, I'm not talking about early days, but, mm -hmm. you know, let's say in the last decade, there's ever been a time when there weren't at least five or six copies of the book available. And, you know, I, I don't know if you ever saw um, a seminar that was done at the Grolier Club in New York called Books in Hard Times. And this was done in 2009, and, and the, I think the papers are online with the Grolier Club, and they've also published them. Mm -hmm. um, and I gave one of the papers at that. And my, what I said about this was that in the age of the Internet, this is the mantra that you work with. You have, the, you have the best, you have the cheapest, or you have the only. And from that's how you sell a book. Either you've got a copy that has something you know, distinctive about it that sets it above all others as a presentation copy, association copy, or it's extraordinary condition. Mm -hmm. Um, or you have a copy that's simply the best bargain there is, um, the cheapest, now you're not, which may not be the best bargain there is, right? Right. Uh, but but some people think it is. Um, and you're speaking on the from the perspective of the of the bookseller right now. I'm thinking from the perspective of the bookseller, but I'm yeah. also thinking from the perspective of the book buyer that when you're offered choices. Um, it's 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 a different matter of going around and looking for a Tarleton. Um, if you know you want a Tarleton, I, I collect American Revolutionary History, I want a Tarleton, and I'm going to wait till I see a copy here, a copy there, a copy there, then I may realize that the first copy I saw was really the best one, but I didn't buy it, and now I call back and it's gone. Whereas now, you have the possibility of really surveying the market mm -hmm. very quickly. Picking the best copy at the cheapest price. Or the copy that's going to suit you the best. Right. And And... If it happens to be association or what, whatever. Sure, right? sure. I mean, there are, there are collectors who either because of the way they're collecting or because they can afford to um, or are going to feel that they only want the best copy. Yeah. I mean, everybody in theory wants the best copy. Mm -hmm. But another collector who may not have the same means may think that a, a, a very nice, clean copy in a, you know, in a modern binding in, in 18th century style is just about their speed. Yeah. And it may be you know, a lot less expensive than the one that is you know, kind of 
the best. Yeah, pristine and original. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a great boon to, um, you know, we could all say, well, the thrill of the hunt has been diminished um, because... Yeah, the thrill of the physical hunt, the physical hunt, uh, although although the what what used to be the internet were catalogs that were mailed yeah. out, and but I, but you're saying that there's a there's a thrill of the hunt online that can be. A, a I think there's a thrill of the hunt online, but I think that also one of the things that the internet has done to people is that it's made them to it's made them forget that they should be going around and looking at books, and the way anybody of, of you know you're probably the same era as I am acquired book knowledge is by going around and looking at books. And looking at books online is not a way to acquire that knowledge. It's a way to find out a specific thing. To find out a specific thing, it's unmatchable. Um, But if you're really going to learn about books, you have to go look at a great many of them. And the question is why? Why? Because then you start to see comparative things. You start to ask questions that you wouldn't necessarily think to ask. Why is this one bound that way and that one's bound the other way? You know, what date is that binding? Is that a contemporary binding or not? Is that a rebinding? If that's a rebinding, it's an awfully skillful rebinding. You know, who, who did that? You know, and historical yeah. books here are a little different than, say, 20th century literature. I was going to say, yeah. Say. But, the, you know, just the physical nature of books, you know, what looking at paper. You know, I, I could look at paper and I can pretty well date it for you. You know, you can show me a piece of paper and I'll, I'm pretty confident I can tell you pretty closely when it was made. You start to look at books and you start to see how books are made. If somebody was interested in Americana and they came and looked at just what happens to be kind of this is all Americana stock right here, kind of a middle range of value, not the most expensive stuff, not the least expensive stuff. Well, they sat and looked at every one of these books and really paid attention to what they were doing. The amount that they could learn would be phenomenal. You would see things about how owners mark their books you would see things about how books are constructed. You would see things about the different kinds of paper used in different eras. All of this stuff ultimately becomes part of what's going on in the mind of any book person, but who's reduced it to no longer consciously thinking about it. I, I, at one point, thought that the best possible state I could get myself into, and I would work at this at book fairs, would be to go to scout a book fair and go around and look at stuff at book fair without having an actual thought in my head, without allowing myself to consciously run anything through, just like pure reaction of all the experience that I'd acquired and compiled over the 40-some years of doing this. It's an interesting exercise. So, sorry, clear your mind of, for example, the fact I want to buy that because I can make a thousand bucks on it. Mm, no, 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 no. I mean, it no. Just, but just Clear look, looking off. at it, taking in the information, not allowing the little gears to turn around, going, hmm, I wonder this, I wonder that, just like trying to completely absorb it and come to a decision, almost unconscious decision about it. Like an emotional decision. Yeah, you know the book Blink? Yes. Yeah, yeah that's what I'm talking about. Okay. Yeah. You've absorbed all of this information experience over the years. So it's as much a, a, a reaction that's an instinctual one. Very early on in the whole business with the Freeman's Oath and the whole Mark Hoffman thing, uh, I was shown that, and, and I was shown it with the, the great collector of early American imprints, Michael Zinman, who I had a long time, my customer and, and friend of many years. And Michael was the greatest collector of this stuff. I was the biggest dealer in it. And we were handed this piece of paper, and we both looked at it, and we both said, as one person, it's wrong. 
And of course, the person who was showing it to us had a huge vested interest in thinking it was right. They had a heart attack. Yes. Yeah, and they said, well, they said, well, why? Why? Why can you say that? And we both said, we don't know. You know, mm-hmm. give us some time. We'll come up with reasons. But this is wrong. You know, just, we just knew it was wrong. So ultimately, you know, it was kind of forensically provable why it was wrong. But it just wasn't right. You know? so it's, it's a yeah. combination of intuition and, a, and a, a great deal of handling of books and know-how, knowledge. Now, yeah. now, you know, these days intuition bumps up against the Internet because the old rule of thumb was if you saw a book, you've been in business as long as I have, and you see something in your field and you've never seen it before, must be rare. Yeah. And that often works, but doesn't always work anymore. You know, sometimes you pick up something and you go, my God, I've never seen this thing. You know, it's like right in the middle of what I do. I mean, yeah, it's got to be good. You know, how much is this? It's like $300. Okay, I'll buy it. Mm-hmm. How can I go wrong? And the funny thing is, I mean, the pre-internet, that would have been a self-fulfilling prophecy. It would have been rare because I'd never seen it before. Right. <laughs> but now you can go home, if you don't have a smartphone with you, you can go home and look it up and discover that, oh, actually, there's two more online for $60 a piece. How disappointing. How disappointing, <laughs> exactly. And at that point, you have to decide. If there's one more online at $60, it's actually kind of easy. You buy it. Yeah. And so you have them all. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, you have the only. Yeah. Uh, if, if you come back home and you check and they're like four copies online and they're you know <laughs> 50 and 60 dollars a piece you throw in the towel and i do anyway yeah and say okay fine let's catalog it price of 45 dollars so yeah so there is a quick way to, to determine if you've got a find or not yeah. now where is it uh, again that uh, that a collector can have the most fun do you think these days then Assuming that, yes, they collect what they love or that... I'm looking for some kind of advice that would really set a collector on an exciting, fun path. Well, I I think there are areas of collecting, and I'll give you again from my own experience. I decided about 20 years ago that I was going to collect um, American color plate books produced in the 19th century. And I created a series of arbitrary criteria for that that... I didn't just make up, though. They were the same criteria that some other bibliographers had used, for example. Color meant that it had to have at least three colors in the place. So two-tone didn't count. You know, mm-hmm. it had to have at least three. Um, that there had to be at least four plates in full color. And that um, it had to be a book. It wasn't just a you know, loose group of, of plates. So I decided to collect American 19th century color plate books. Now, some of those were very readily identifiable. I mean, some of them are, you know, there's some big grand books. But there also, it turned out, lots and lots of books that nobody had counted as American color plate books. And as such, they weren't terribly sought after. Exactly. And and sometimes sometimes they were books that were well-known for other reasons, Mm -hmm. but nobody had ever thought of them as color plate books. Uh, A good example would be a book uh, by a woman named Celia Thaxter about uh, the Maine coast. And it has these illustrations by uh, the American painter Shield Song. So it's an American art book in a way. But from my point of view, they're actually very beautiful chromolithographs that were done by this Philadelphia or the Boston firm that was a pioneering firm in developing you know, printing techniques. So I was looking at it from a different perspective than mm-hmm. other people were. So sometimes I was buying you know, famous books. Sometimes I was buying famous, well-known books. Sometimes I was buying books that were perfectly well-known, but people didn't care about them for the same reason I did. 
And sometimes I was buying books that people basically didn't care about, but I discovered that they had in them what I wanted, and there was no good way to find them except go around and look. Mm -hmm. There isn't a good bibliography. There are a couple. There are a couple kind of me mediocre bibliographies. So in the end, I put together a collection that had was the the biggest collection of American color playbooks, bigger than the Holdings Library of Congress, bigger than the Holdings New York Public Library, Yale, Harvard. It was the single biggest collection of my little chosen genre there was, and I had it all in one room, the top floor of this building. It's funny because I interviewed Richard Minsky not that long ago, uh -huh. who did pretty well the same thing with cloth, either gilt or color designs mm -hmm. on, on boards. Yeah. From a set period, from 1870 to, to 1930. Sure. Based on, it was one of the Grolier Club you know, back then they'd identified one of the first. It's, so it sounds to me like the best thing that a, a collector could do is to, is to identify something that, they're, that they find beautiful. And, mm -hmm. and that's a pretty key thing, isn't yeah. it? This it speaks to you aesthetically. Yeah, and, but also find a, find a different way to slice the pie. Mm -hmm. In Richard's case, he was buying a lot of books that are perfectly well-known books. He was also buying some famous books that probably would cost a bunch of money. And he was buying some books that nobody's ever heard of. Yes. And people were probably very, very happy to sell them for a dollar. But once he put them in the context of his collection, they took on a whole new life. And that was the other great thing about doing a collection like that over his collection, because that's, to my mind, the fun of a collection. That you start to get these things that speak to each other, and yes. they start to play off against each other, and you put together a group of American bindings like that, and suddenly like you're seeing a pattern. This is what... Um, Zinman and I call the critical mass theory of collecting. In, in Michael's case, in Michael's case, it was early American imprints. Michael set out to collect things printed in America before 1801, yeah. and everybody said it's too late, you know, far too late. It's all been done at all in institution. Yeah. Well, ultimately, he put together a collection that was as big as all but a couple of institutional collections. And when um, would it, when would have this been? Uh, Michael was actively collecting that stuff from 1980 to 2001. Okay, so and in not the distant past. In 2001, I sold it on his behalf to the Library Company of Philadelphia, which combined with their holdings made them the second biggest holder of American imprints before 1801. And since then, Michael went on the board, and he has found and given to them more than a thousand additional American yeah, because it's never over, is it? You, yeah. oh, it's like a bibliography. You just have to decide, okay, let's cut it here. But it's, it's ongoing, isn't it? So in it? Michael's case, Michael kept buying everything, and he kept buying, he didn't just buy perfect copies. He was buying imperfect copies, too, and he, he'd get grief for it. Oh, he didn't just buy some perfect copies. Actually, he bought just as many perfect copies. But he liked to get multiples of titles. And then we'd sit down, we'd take a title, and we'd sit down, and we'd start to compare these things, these dirty little products of the early American press. And once you got three or four copies together and you started comparing, ooh, suddenly you discover all kinds of things. You discover they were set differently. You discover that like the, the second half of the signatures would, had obviously been set and printed in a different typeface than this copy. You know, the, the amount of stuff that will be learned out of the Zinman collection for, will go on for decades. And it was all because Michael instead of starting with like some kind of very defined boundary of saying, I'm only going to do this and so forth, he just let it go. And he, I tried to do the same thing with the color plate things. It's like... He, I, but I, he I, let it go. He, 
he let it go and he let what you had compiled to that date talk to you about yeah, what and, else and needed to be to added? Things. You, started, you started to see which printers were good printers. You, you could put it together in these different ways now. You could say, well, you know, Benjamin Fowle is actually a very good printer, a very, pro- a very proper printer, as it was in the 18th century. Nice. Uh, whereas, you know, this other shop does this, you know, really kind of hack work. Because they what whipped out? Yeah, they just yeah. whipped out the work. Right, uh, right. You know, with the color plate stuff. Uh, of course, by the time I was collecting it, I could have a computer database. Made it easier. We can look at. I had a shelf chronologically, so you could automatically see it that way. But we also were indexing it by the people who were making the plates, as opposed to just the publisher. So we could say, well, you, you start to see which color printers who were doing a lot of other, you know, the color printers who were doing just color printing. My friend Jay Lasts has been a great collector of American color printing in the 19th century, which is much more, you know, broadsides, posters, posters you know, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Whereas you see the guys who were specializing in book illustration, you know, and, and who were not doing so much of that kind of job work. Just one thing would lead to another. And yeah. that's, that's always been the idea of collecting to me is that, you know, the door opens the door, the book opens the book. And you find out about something, you find out about this particular Philadelphia printer, and then you get a curious in them. And then, of course, if you get around in books as much as you do or as much as I do, the next thing you know, something else pops up right there. It's like you always wonder, you know, would I have walked by that and not seen that? You see one thing at a certain time, then another thing becomes much more interesting. Whereas, as you say, prior to that, you would have you you wouldn't even seen it. So I, I think a, a key way to do it is to find kind of a different way to slice the pie. Obviously, a way to slice it that's tasty to you. Yeah. C- could you give another example of that that's affordable and current? I think collecting 20th century travel narratives is, is an area that I like a lot. And I would tend to do it more by area. People tend to look at you know, who the famous anthologized travel writers are. But if you start to look at Archie Hanna, my mentor at Yale, did a bibliography of what he called American social fiction. Uh, in the 20th century, first half of the 20th century. So it was all about novels where the social milieu was a prominent part of it, whether that was that the people were like, you know, poor whites living in Mississippi, or whether that they were steel workers or whatever. And he indexed it by all those things. He indexed it by trades, professions, geographical locations, so forth. So you started to discover, like, there were about 15 novels about being a... Uh, electrical linesmen, you know, especially out in the West where, you know, the lines will snap, they get too taut. The stuff ranged from Faulkner to a lot of mostly novels that people have never heard of, but, you know, all written from the heart by somebody. So in other Uh, words, if you're really uh, keen about a particular part of the world that speaks to you, mm -hmm. then go after travel narratives but also novels and non-fiction or you well that, that's a good way to do it i mean that's kind of the model of the daunt bookstores which are new books mm. but daunt's you know one of my favorite bookstores in the world and that's it's organized that way i mean you go to a section that's got travel guides to greece but it's also got novels set in greece travel writing about greece exactly. yes so exactly. it's a layered deep way of really learning about a place yeah I think there are lots and lots of 20th century American historical themes that, that nobody collects. I mean, people tend to collect stuff up to, uh, kind of up to World War I, up to about 100 years ago. But people don't tend to collect too much about, say, 
I've always had a penchant for you know the depression myself. A lot of people collected WPA publications, the Works Progress Administration, who did all these most famously did these state guides. But did tons of stuff. They did about a thousand different publications, local histories and things like that. There, there are just so many. In in the end, I mean, collecting is only fun because it's about something that interests you. Yeah. If you find a way to do it that's going to keep making it more interesting, then you're going to have a lot more fun doing it. So finding something where things are not that well defined, and at the same time, I've formed author collections, and I've had a great time forming author collections. You know, it, it's a little bit more collecting by numbers. There's a roadmap sure. for you. I mean, I, I right. formed a huge collection of Robert Gray. It's probably the biggest collection put together in this country, and almost all of which I've given to Yale, who didn't have any. And I told Yale, actually, when I started collecting, I said, I'm going to give this to you someday. So don't go out and buy Robert Graves. Don't compete, don't compete with me. <laughs> right, right. Because I, I promise you, I'll give it to you. Yeah. And in that case, I collected manuscripts as well. I, you know, I ended up with a couple hundred Graves letters as well as the books. So there's a good bibliography. And you know, so there's Graves A1 and so forth. I mean, no surprises yeah. that way. But... In author collecting, the surprises can be you know, association, and association copies to me are what really make literary collecting go round. I mean, you know, it's like famous Johnson quote, right? The biographical part of literature is what I love most. So I've had a lot of fun forming author collections, even though I, in theory, knew what I wanted to collect when I started. But what I then discovered was I found out who the author's good friends had been and what they wrote and you started reading some of the letters that they wrote to their literary friends and that's exactly and, and, what uh, harry ransom does yeah that's their approach on delillo and uh, david foster wallace yeah that that kind of interplay i suppose is just great ground for the for the researcher well and i i was a uh, you know i, I love reading evil and law but i never wanted to seriously collect evil and law it was you know well-trodden path although i do i do have a home in my collection i've got a few nice wall things but because of him i read christopher sykes's biography of him and i got interested in christopher sykes who's the dedicatee of his second novel of all bodies and and his good friend and ultimately biographer after he died and in Christopher Sykes, I discovered an author who wrote a whole series of fascinating, wonderful books. Wrote a, a truly great book, Four Studies in Loyalty, and some other, you know, kind of minor classics. Collecting Christopher Sykes was lots of fun. Nobody else was doing it. That yeah. makes it so much fun, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> and yeah. as it happened, right about that point, his, uh, his son was kind of having a train wreck, or I think his son or his grandson, Christopher Simon Sykes who's a well-known journalist now, but was uh, being a brash young man in London and snorting most of his inheritance up his nose. And so he ended up selling off his father's papers. So I ended up buying that stuff via mags, all of the working papers for a bunch of Christopher Sykes' books. And that led me to Robert Byron, who's also, of course, a, a better-known, better-collected writer, who was Sykes's, also Sykes' dear friend. I mean, Sykes is one of these guys who was like the one of the best friends of all these famous yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, pivotal. It so again, only, it's in it's in reading biographies it too, not only isn't led it? Me around, it not only, that collecting not only led me around a lot of collecting of books, but it led me around a lot of great reading. And it led me from one character to another. And, you know, they, it all, you know, all stuck together in a, in a much more coherent way when you, when you went about it that way. So I think author collections can be fun. What's no fun is saying, well, yeah, Joyce, I'm not going to even, you know, I just want Ulysses. You know, what's no fun is high spot collecting, to my mind. 
I can't think of anything more boring. And yet there are bookstores that specialize in exactly that. Sure. Look, we're, we're merchants who are selling material and we're selling what people want. And the fact that these particular, you know, range of books, you know, this kind of nifty 50 group of books is what a group of very, very well-heeled people want and push mm-hmm. the prices up, well, that's the marketplace. Yeah. We, have to, we have to live in the marketplace. So, yeah, we're not at the mercy of the market when it comes to being a collector. Far from it. It's not as if you can't cut your own path. I mean, there are tons of authors to collect that other people aren't collecting. Yeah. Um, and I was fortunate with Graves, say, at the time that I started collecting Graves in about 1980. Nobody else was really doing it. He was still alive, although completely gaga at that point. In Mallorca at that point? He was a, yeah, he'd been in Mallorca. For, for quite a while, for, yeah. For decades. When he died in 85, all his contemporaries were dying. So all the stuff was about to come out anyway, but in a lot of cases, the either they or the families, you know, had felt enough sense of propriety that they weren't going to sell the stuff while he was alive. But when he died, at which point I was pretty well kind of up and going as a Graves collector, and I knew my way around the bibliography and who his friends were and, you know, so forth. Um, he had his own little press, too, didn't he? They did, the size of the press. Yeah. Uh, they ran for a while. With Laura. places with Laura Riding, you know, yeah. you know, who's her own piece of work. <laughs> Laura Riding was still alive at, at that point, and, and somehow or another discovered I was collecting graves. She was living, still living in the grapefruit farm in Wabasso, Florida, where she'd run off with Skylar Jackson. She wrote, started writing me these denouncatory letters. I'd, I'd never had anything to do with her. She started writing me out of the blue, telling me, like, you know, long, long letters telling me what a fool I was to collect Robert Graves. It's very strange. The, the scorn of a, a the spite, spite and scorn of a, of a jilted woman. Well, she, well, she jilted him. Mm. She was the one who blew him off. I mean, <laughs> okay. it was the best thing that ever happened to him, as it turned <laughs> out. But, uh, but anyway, yeah. I, I do think that the, the whole high spot concept is an unfortunate one because I've been guilty of creating lists of best books. Well, it's elitist. I mean, it's and it's beyond the reach of most people. Yeah, and it's it's kind of a it's a good way. It's very helpful if you're setting out to read in an area to have some idea. You should read this. You should read that. You know, these are the classics and so forth. Yeah, it's the foundation course. It's but really people the, always take these things too literally. They won't go beyond the the enshrined list. And where it really gets silly is something like say the the Grolier Club American Hundred, which is a collector's list that's used. Well, I know a fair bit about how that show was put together. It was put together by a committee of three people. Um, Bradley Martin, great book collector, great collector of American literature. Thomas Streeter, greatest collector of Americana of the period. Um, and Carol Wilson, a great bibliographer uh, and collector, with totally different ideas. It wasn't intended to enshrine anything. It was an exhibition of interesting American books. <laughs> and so, but because they chose it, it must be important. And because it got published as a book, and it was the yeah. Grolier Club, and so forth. And, and it, so it, it became like this thing, collecting the Grolier 100. Yeah. Well, some of them, certainly, obviously, you know, yeah, we, we can all agree that, you know, the Declaration of Independence ought to be in the Grolier <laughs> American 100, or that, or that the Federalists ought to be there, or, yeah. the, or the Gettysburg Address. But it's like someone else doing the thinking for you. Yeah, but these yeah. days we probably wouldn't like James Whitcomb Riley on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, although they made some beautiful versions of his books, right? Yeah, that's, that's true. But that would be a more of an aesthetic 
collecting than than content. Yeah, the, the guys who created it didn't weren't trying to enshrine anything. They, they, yeah. they were putting on a temporary book yes. show. <laughs> yes. you know, they were putting on a temporary book show, and then it gets turned by degrees into this you know sacred thing. Printing them on demand is the same thing. One of the most brilliant book exhibitions ever created by two of the great bibliographers of the 20th century, um, the great book people of the 20th century, and a wonderful reference book, fascinating in many ways. But once somebody says, okay, well, I'm going to collect Printing the Mind of Man, and then they won't collect anything else, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you a good Printing the Mind of Man story. So a um, very famous book collector calls me up, very famous, but I would say not terribly well-read book collector, called me up. And he said, well, Bill, you know, we never do much business because, you know, I really am more of a literature collector and history of science and so forth. But, you know, I collect printing the mind of man and there's some Americana titles. You know, maybe you can help me with them. And I said, well, what are you looking for? He said, well, I'm looking for a Columbus letter. I said, well, I don't have a Columbus letter. There hasn't been one around for a while. I said, what I do have in stock, I had a copy of Amerigo Vespucci's Mundus Novus, which is much more of an important account of the New World of the very early accounts than the Columbus letter is, which just has this very brief little mention of having landed on an island and met some natives. Well, We're, Columbus didn't get the country named after him Exactly. <laughs> well, we're getting to that. <laughs> oh, so okay. I, I said, I have, you know, Mundus, Mundus Novus by Amerigo Vespucci. And he said, Mundus Novus, like, what's that? I said, well, New World. It means New World, and, and it describes Vespucci's four voyages. It's all entirely devoted to, you know, what he discovered in his four voyages. It's really, in many ways, the first... Thing of substance about the new world, and he's Vespucci. Says, "Now I've never heard of him." And uh, I said, "Amerigo Vespucci is the man America's named after." Nah, I want something people have heard of. You can only educate them so far. That's not to say that I don't know some exceedingly smart book collectors because I yeah. do. In fact, most of the book collectors I know are, are smart and well read, or and, and smarter than the dealer in their area of interest, what, yeah, or should be. And know what they're interested, yeah. what they're interested in. And so it's when you kind of hit that mogul level that sometimes you have more you know, people who are just not willing to put in the time mm-hmm. that it ultimately takes to you know start to absorb a real feel for the stuff. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Books are an area of antiques, and book dealers should face that. Mm-hmm. They're selling objects that people collect, just as much as if they were selling chairs or baskets or anything else. So people are collecting them because they're interested in them, because they find them aesthetically appealing, because they speak to them in some way. They take them out of their normal existence and allow them to go somewhere else and and do something that they find fun and rejuvenating in some way. Meaningful. Meaningful. Yeah. And and I, I say this to book people and they often get their backs up. You know, I say, you know, really we're in the antiques business. We're much more intellectual. We're much more intellectual. Yeah. But there's nothing wrong with people enjoying books for whatever reason they're mm. enjoying them and at whatever level they're enjoying them. But there are always going to be some people who are going to who for whom collecting is more about them having it and other people not having it. Yeah, ego. That's where you kind of run into the ego thing. And, and that often is where you run into the list thing. The yeah. ego thing and the legacy thing, I suppose. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that what would be beneficial for the, the profession of antiquarian book selling, used antiquarian, is more discussions about what could be interesting, not putting the list together so that it's all sort of set out for mm-hmm. you, but rather putting out a lot of different seeds that could be chosen to yeah. 
to harvest. And that's what I'm doing here with, with you is, is trying to stir up some, some areas that might be a so good collect, ground. Collecting you know? should be a process of discovery. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a process not necessarily discovering things that nobody else, somebody else doesn't know, but a personal discovery. And it's, you know, it should be something that's taking you places, bringing you to look at stuff differently, or getting you involved in authors that you've never heard of because they were involved with the author you have heard of. To me, it's always been about connections and you know, kind of plugging things together and then going from there. Connections, and, too, with, with other people who share your, your, your passion. Oh, sure. And in that sense, I mean, the book world is a very convivial place. I mean, it's a more convivial place than the art world, that's for, that's for very sure. I mean, most book people like other book people. Although it can be intimidating it for the, be, you yeah. know, for the, for the outsider who goes to a book fair because small talk isn't often at the top of the agenda. Every, you know, every little world has its, has its jargon. You know, I go to some antique shows and I hear people talking things that, like, I don't even know what they're talking about <laughs> yes, sometimes, right. you know? Right, yeah. Just, just the language of books, you know, yeah. the boards, you know, hinges, uh, you know, it, it's ultimately jargon, but trades can't get it on without it. I mean, otherwise, you know, you go along endlessly explaining something you can explain in two seconds. There's some wonderful English ones uh, that, that sum things up. Like that, my, One of my favorite is the idea of like a big, big, fancy set, let's say like a super binding, extra illustrated, you know, and really it's a, a set of an author's works, but it's just been done up to the nines. It's got all those like, you know, gorpy other elements to it that make it a lot more expensive. So the, the old English trade phrase for this was a flash lump. A flash lump. A flash lump. <laughs> and I first heard this in some London fair, and I'm like looking at this thing as I walk around with my English dealer friends, and I said, do you see that thing over there? And they're like, yeah, a flash lump. I was like, what do you say? <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. But, you know, there's some, once you know it, uh, you know, if it's something you're living in, then it, yeah. it, it cuts to the chase so quickly. <laughs> yeah. Gives you exactly the idea of what it is. Just uh, finally, um, you seem to be pretty happy. I am, yeah. I love my business. I love my business. I love the book business. You know, I've met a lot of wonderful people um, doing this over the years. Colleagues, customers. You know, the vast majority of the people I deal with day in, day out are very pleasant people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's always going to be you can't run a business without, you know, some pains of running a business mm -hmm. and provided by the government or, you know, <laughs> otherwise. Yeah. Um, you know, you can't run a business without running into some distasteful or rude people. But I would say, by and large, the book world is a very pleasant place. So it's, it's a, you know, I, I've loved what I've done all my career. I wake up in the morning and I, you know, want to go to work. And it's not because I don't like my home don't love my wife, I do. I think a lot of book people feel that way. And you know, there are a lot of people I know in the book business who certainly could have made more money doing something else. Yeah. Um, because you know, they were they were smart and able people and you know, if, if that had been their goal they could have. But they may have had a happier time with things. The book world now, from a dealing point of view, one of the odd things about it is that the dealers are somewhat divided between people like me, right, called lifers. You know, kind of been in the trade, and in the English book world, it tends to be much more like that. Um, and second careerists, 
who I have nothing against, but there is a there are a number of American dealers who are that you know are people who were collectors often um, and had a regular profession and they did you know something you know often did something fairly remunerative um, and they've retired but they're not ready to retire so they've decided to like, take their collection and roll it over into being a dealer. Kind of a romantic way to sort yeah. of wrap up a, a good and, life. You know, I don't, I, I don't have a problem with anybody doing what they want to do, but it is a different way of approaching it. Because to mm-hmm. me, at the same time, as much as I love it, the book business is a business, and I run like a business. Mm-hmm. And the biggest difficulty in running a successful book business is buying books at the right price. And that's a matter of self-discipline. It's not a matter of working people. But if you go through an auction catalog, and believe me, I go through hundreds of auction catalogs a year, and we go through them, we spot stuff we think that we know something about, where we can add value. We bid on them. Auctions are very chancy places. Often things that are worth a lot go for more than they're worth. Often things go for less than they're worth. So we put a huge amount of effort into acquiring the stuff. But I do it with absolute discipline. Just because you love something, it's only still worth a certain amount. It's like going to Las Vegas and I'm only going to spend this amount. Yeah. Except the odds are better for me than they are in Vegas. Because they're not, yeah, they're not because stacked against I'm, I'm, you. I'm, I'm the house. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but that, to me, is, is the problem I often see with the second career folks, is they don't view it that way. They want to have nice books. Well, they're not, they're, coll- they're not professional booksellers. They're yeah. collectors that haven't let go of that, yeah, right? Exactly. And the professional booksellers are, are going to be the ones who, who maintain the discipline. And it means that most of the time, you don't buy what you want to buy. You know, you'd like to have that, but yeah. you don't get it. Um, but when you do buy it, you buy it at a price where you, you can make some money on it and sell it, uh, sell it at a reasonable price. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a tough discipline to keep, but it's a very important one. And I think it's the, the key to being a successful rare book dealer. Uh, certainly one I've tried to keep. And if you're doing a big enough volume, as we are, and you're seeing enough things involved, enough things, every year there'll be a few presents that fall in your lap. You'll be sitting in an auction room, you'll be planning to bid a lot on something, and suddenly nobody else will bid against you, and you'll get a screaming bargain. So you get the, that thrill. There's still yeah. that thrill of the... Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay. I think and is that what you love most about this? Like, what do you love most? About what you do when you wake up in the morning and you... I learn something every day. That's what I love the most about it. I learn something new every day. About books, but about life, about... about life, about the world, about you know, history, yeah. about whatever. But I learn something new every day. That's great. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank, thank you for coming. I'd be speaking with Bill Reese, who is a rare antiquarian book dealer, dealer based by appointment in New Haven, Connecticut. And by appointment, we mean that you're happy to see people We're if they call people. in advance and give you an idea of what they're after. That's right. Exactly. Okay. And that's because just the way our, our buildings are laid out, you know, we not that we don't trust people, but we do need somebody there with people that we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got a limited staff, and so we've, we've got to kind of go out of our way to take care of people. We're always happy to see people, but they should give us at least a day's notice. Thanks very much. Okay, you're okay. welcome.